Hello, lovelies. Before we get started, I wanted you to know that the Am Yisrael Chai Krunek is still available to order. The events of the past few weeks have made me want to simultaneously show my Jewish pride and help in a real and meaningful way. So together with my talented friend, Michelle Moses, I created the Am Yisrael Chai Krunek. This super cozy crewneck sweatshirt, so think your favorite hoodie without the hood or pockets, features a wonderfully uplifting graphic of a mug and David, a Jewish star, together with a heart and a dove above the words Am Yisrael Chai, the nation of Israel lives. Because just like all the others who have tried to destroy us, this whole nightmare will soon be a part of history while we go on. 10% of your $54 purchase goes directly towards Hadassah Goldbergs, aka the real Hadassah's initiatives for our Chayalim and their wives. Hadassah supports them and their families with items ranging from solar phone chargers to cleaning help at home. They need to feel our love and support now more than ever, so let's show them and the rest of the world that I'm Yisrael Chai. The Am Yisrael Chai Krunek is available in sizes extra small through 3X. You can see it on impactfashionnyc.com and you can place your order there as well. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. On this special anniversary episode, we celebrate the fourth birthday of this podcast. I'll share my thoughts on this milestone and a slight change I'm making going forward. We'll also hear some of my favorite and the most important bits of the episode from this past year. Hello, lovelies. It has been four years of doing this show, which honestly, I could use a little bit of celebration right now. And we are using this. And I have to say, it's really, it's, it has been really special what these past four years have, um, have meant for myself, have meant for this show, have meant for Impact Fashion as a whole. And it is really special to be able to share that with you because the truth is that this podcast has been a huge part of, um, how more and more people have come to find out about the work that so many different women do. Um, and I'll include myself in that category and getting to know all of you through the topics that you relate to most through what we discuss here has been really very special. There are almost 200,000 downloads on this podcast, which means that almost 200,000 times someone has sat down or done the dishes or gone for a walk or I don't know, played this in the background somewhere of taking the the time, possibly for yourselves, maybe with somebody else to learn, uh, to learn and to discover what is going on in the world around you uh, and to hear some from some pretty incredible women about what it is that they are doing. And it is really just this is this is our birthday. This is a birthday for all of us to celebrate together Um I mentioned in the intro, there's a tiny little change that I'm making going forward. And that is that I'm changing the question I ask at the end of all the interviews. Um, this idea of asking the same question to everyone is not my own. Uh, it comes from Guy Raz, who is uh, a podcast host who's probably most well known for a show called How I Built This. I have for sure mentioned it on this podcast before. It is um, probably my favorite podcast that I listen to. Uh, and on how I built this, Guy interviews um, business leaders, usually people who have started companies and basically just how they started their company, what that process was like, what the, um, you know, 
what are the things that came up? And he tells the different stories of how different companies came to be. And at the end of every interview, um, he asked them how much they think their success is due to their own hard work and how much it is due to luck. Basically, like what role luck played in their um, in their success. And he asked that to everybody who comes on. What's very interesting to me is that a lot of times the answers are repetitive, but they're, they usually reveal something about the type of person who you've been listening to for the past, you know, hour, hour and a half, however long it's been. And I always liked how when you have the same question asked over and over again, you had that same framing pretty much a guy has since gone on to do other shows and he employs the same, this same tactic. He has another show called wisdom from the top, which, um, is usually with like CEOs, so not the founders, but like people who run major companies. And he asks them if leadership is something that they think they were born with or something that they learned. Most of them say learned, by the way, like the vast, vast, vast majority. Um, and he has a different show. This just became into a commercial for all of Guy's shows. Hi, Guy, I'm a fan. Um, his different show that's much, much more recent called The Great Creators, um, which is usually with like actors, musicians, those kinds of people talking about their careers. And he asks them if they think that creativity is something that like, is it just a talent that you either have or you don't? Or is it something that you think anyone can access? Vast majority, by the way, say that they think that anyone can access that, um, which I thought was very interesting. But what... It's, it speaks to creativity as a skill as opposed to creativity as a trait, which I happen to agree with. I do think it's a skill, but a conversation for a different time. And so I like this idea of asking everybody the same question. Um, and you know that if, you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, then up until this point, I've always asked, what does it mean to you to make an impact? And I've decided to change that for like... I wanted to change. <laughs> that was uh, definitely a part of it of just, you know, switch things up a little bit. Um, but also what I found was that the types of what people really wanted to answer was the the point in their life where they've had the most impact. Um, a lot of times, you know, what does it mean to me to make an impact? A lot of times people would say things like on my family, um, you know, I've, you know, to, to make sure that my, the people around me feel loved and cared for or something like that. And so I wanted to shift the question a little bit and well, I've kind of given it away already, but I'll leave a little bit of a teaser. And next week you can hear uh, what the new question will be. It's a little bit different. Uh, I hope that you like it. I'm open to your feedback. Um, if you'd like, by the way, if you'd like to send me feedback, you always can. It's Rivky, R-I-V-K-Y at impactfashionnyc.com. And you, yeah, let me know what you think about the show. If you are listening, by the way, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, you can rate and review the show. That really does make it much easier for people to find the show for, you know, what to expect. I do read the reviews. They bring me lots of joy. Um, was that a little bit uh, too revealing? Potentially, but I don't mind saying it. Yes, I read the comments and I would love to to hear from you there. So if you have a moment to do that, if you have a friend who you think would enjoy the show, I'd love to hear from them. You know, I'd love for, for them to listen as well. Uh, and I just wanted to say thank you for these past four years and to many, many, many more. We're going to dive into my favorite part of the year, which is when we revisit my favorite bits, some of the most important bits of conversation uh, that happened over the last year. So last year, we opened up with a four-part series on breast cancer. We uh, spoke to four different people who had four different experiences with breast cancer or BRCA um, and who shared differing levels of um, 
of uh, I, I guess not experience and in, in like expertise, but who who shared their own stories. So our first guest of the year uh, is a woman named Natalie Herschel, who underwent a preventative um, surgery after she found out that she was uh, positive for BRCA. And in this clip, she's going to share with us why she thinks it's important to be open about these issues. Well, it's still so new people going for preventative surgery, you know, like, you know, the, the famous poster child was Angelina Jolie, like everyone knows that she went, and went ahead and had that. But nobody knows, like, that no, there's no, there's no first degree or second degree type, type of a person that you know, who had the surgery, who you can go and ask them, you know, their thoughts and their questions like, okay, so you're BRCA positive, what does that mean? What do you need to do now? Um, so I feel part of my, I don't want to say like mission, but part of my, I guess, purpose of maybe finding out that I had a bracket two mutation is that I'm a voice for people. So I want to tell my story. I want to share it. I want people to know um, it's not a, it's not a death sentence. You know, it's not, it's scary and you might break down and you might cry. I'm not so emotional. So I, 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 I didn't really cry when I found out I, I was more in shock. Um, but it's more for, it's more for knowing that there were other people who did this before you and that, you know, it is a scary road and it is a long road, um, but you know you can come out on the end and you're fine and you're healthy and you you know you look almost like you did before the surgery and you have you know you have you you have options. This next clip is from Shayna Greenfield. So she was the second woman I spoke to in this breast cancer series. And in our conversation, she had also uh, underwent a preventative double mastectomy. And uh, in this clip, she gave a little bit more about the details, you know, some of the nitty gritty of the process. In your surgery, if I understood correctly, and and feel free to share as many or as few details about this as you yeah. want. But it based on what you described before, it sounds like you had the incision go like across your lower abdomen i guess like like across uh, underneath your belly button you said and then they use all that the way from side to side like literally from hip to hip okay so like okay so, okay so side to side straight across and then straight up towards your belly button and then they cut around your belly button okay and then was that like the entry point to get everywhere they needed to get no that was just where they took out the tissue that was just that was a whole that was to remove all the fat and everything that they were going to use to to build you back up on top. Build me back up. I, I I then then they then they went up top and cut off. Yeah, they. I mean, they cut off your boobs. That's what a mastectomy yeah. is. Um, the way it actually works is so I actually had two different procedures done on each boob. Actually, um, I didn't know that was an option. Do tell. So in general, it's not. Um, there's two different surgeries you could have there's that d-i-e-p flap i think and an s-i-e-p flap i might be getting the words wrong whatever there's one with a d and one with an s continue but basically um they're the two different ways of the procedure but they break they, they actually break open your ribs okay you have to crack your ribs to get at the blood vessels because they're reconnecting the fat tissue and everything to the blood supplies of the tissue that was there. Because this is real fat and real tissue, it's not an implant. It needs blood supply and it needs to be able to live. To live and not die. Right. So and they have to, and apparently I was born with 
my with with a with, with veins outside of my like on top of my rib cage on one side cool so they only had to break my ribs on one side bonus so technically they were two different procedures but it was the same thing like right um and then that was how I did so I never had to I had a double mastectomy but I never had to be without breasts for any point of time and I knew that going in and I think that made a big difference also in everything because I didn't have I mean you're I have scars and you have, I had drains. I had four drains hanging out of me when the surgery was over two on either side of my hips because of the bottom part of the surgery. Like, Cause basically I right. had two different surgeries. So I also had two hanging out right here. Of like my bo- like, like at your upper armpits, basically. Yeah. Those were the most uncomfortable part of the, like of the yeah. healing was having the drains hanging out. Next up for the series, I spoke with Shauna Aleyev. She is currently fighting breast cancer. That is still true today. And in this clip, she talks about the whirlwind of doctor's appointments and not wanting to have those no hope eyes. February, it's like, okay, meeting with, um, having an ultrasound, MRI, um, breast surgeon, meeting with the oncologist, like all these, like a day after day, so many different appointments. And then I also had a four, four or five month old baby and I was like, just so it literally just like spiraling. And, um, um, but so I went to them and this doctor actually looked at me and was like, she put her hand on me and she's like, you're so young. And I remember being like, Ooh, like you're feeling bad for me right now. And you're giving me this feeling of like, sucks that you're going to die. And I'm sorry. No, seriously. I was oh, like, you're right. You're you right. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. That's exactly what she was doing. <laughs> I don't like, I don't want this. I don't want you with your no hope eyes to be, you know, helping me. You can't have a conversation about breast cancer without talking to a doctor. So this is from my conversation with Dr. Mimi Knoll. She is a radiation oncologist and she does treat breast cancer among other types of cancers. And in this clip, she shares about how there are lots of people walking around with cancer that you wouldn't even know about. More and more, there are patients with cancer who can live a very, very long time with their cancer, meaning, and they can die from something else. So they're always going to have the cancer, meaning we're always going to be worried about it and checking, you know, and doing scans and, you know, being concerned that, you know, if it will come back. But very often the cancer can be slow growing. It can be held at bay with different systemic therapies, especially newer ones. And they can live a very long time. Um, specifically for breast cancer, this is even common, you know, 10, 20 years ago because certain types of breast cancer, specifically hormone positive breast cancer, women can unfortunately suffer from it for a very long time. You know, of course, it's sad they're suffering from cancer. On the other hand, it's, you know, really a miracle that they're able to live with their cancer for so long. Um, And that happens more commonly than people might think. You know, there are a lot of women walking around with breast cancer that no one ever knows. They don't tell anyone. You'll never know. Um, and that's just in, incredible. And then there are other women who, you know, are living with breast cancer and they also don't tell anyone they could be going for treatment. They could look totally fine. 
you know, um, and it could take, you know, a couple of years until unfortunately they, you know, the cancer um, unfortunately um, takes over and they die from it. Next up, after we closed out that series on breast cancer, I spoke with Shannon Lore. This entire conversation is about sustainability in fashion. It's a really fascinating one. And in this particular clip, we discuss how shopping secondhand has evolved over the years. Even back to like the secondhand kind of route, you know, back when I was shopping, it's like, you know, it's like you go to Goodwill, you go to Salvation Army. Now it's like a curated shopping experience. You have like Poshmark, you have Thread Up, like you don't even have to leave your house. There's so many, and then you you have like your brick and mortar secondhand stores where they are curated and you know um, displayed as if it's just you know a regular clothing boutique. So I think that ex- shopping experience has gotten a lot better as well. So true, and also now it's not secondhand; it's vintage. Shannon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> vintage. It's vintage from Goodwill. Yeah, Didn't you know. Yeah. <laughs> And and that also, I think that that's done. I mean, I'm so happy for secondhand clothes to have gotten that wonderful rebranding because you're right. It's mm-hmm. just just having something be worn is is that much more special, which is why it pays to be a little bit more discerning about the actual pieces that you bring into your closet. Because if you're going to wear it again and again, then it becomes worth the investment, you know, obviously relative to how much you're paying for it, but it can be yeah. worth a much higher investment. Yes, I love the blend of, of vintage and um, and sustainable sustainably made pieces, like I think that blend, and then just with the less is more approach of being like again very discerning about what you're bringing into your closet. Um, I love seeing that that's sort of the direction that a lot of consumers are going. I do one sale a year and that sale I always run as a choose your discount where there is a lower discount amount, but you can still uh, return the item. And then there's a higher discount amount where it is final sale. And during that sale, I always do a solo podcast episode and we chat and catch up. And it's one of my favorite episodes to do, actually. And in this clip, I'm going to give you my rules for buying final sale. I have a couple of rules that I like to follow when buying something final sale. And these are just good rules to know in general not just, you know, for this particular instance of, you know, deciding which discount you're going to use for the choose your discount sale. But a couple of rules that I like to follow. Number one, you got to trust the quality of the brand. You have to know who you're buying from. You have to know that the stuff is made well. You have to know that what you're getting is actually worth the price that you're paying. Uh, The way that you know that is basically through their reputation. If you've bought from them before, uh, talking to people who have bought from them, checking out their reviews, that kind of thing. The second one is that you want to trust their sizing because, you know, you're buying something final sale. You want to have a reasonable idea that it will fit you. The main giveaway here, the key takeaway is that you want to be looking for actual numbers and measurements. If a size chart says, you know, medium is size two, four or whatever, medium is size eight, 10, let's say, then that is your, that's your red flag that they're not taking sizing seriously because, size 2-4 or size 8-10 or whatever it is, sizing is not standardized in the United States. So that's just a title. It's not a real measurement. Um, the size chart should say something like medium has a 38-inch waist or something to that effect. That's what you want to be looking for. If you are not sure about sizing with any brand, by the way, then you can you know ask them some questions. You know How how big is this waist? How big is that bust line? And then pay attention to their answers. If they don't have definitive numbers and inches to give to you, that's a major red flag in my book. So you want to know that you trust the sizing. The third thing is that you want to either know your size or be pretty confident about 
figuring it out. So that's something to to keep in mind as well. I actually size people via DM pretty often. And the way that I do it is using bra sizes because bra sizes are actually based on real measurements. The, a bra size. So is like, let's say I'll use mine. I'm a 38 B. So the 38 is an actual measurement. It's my inch measurement right underneath. It's, it's your rib cage measurement. So it's right underneath your boobs going all the way around. And then B is the cup size. So your actual bust measurement, you're adding a number for every letter. So for B, you're adding two because AB, one, two. Um, and my bust measurement is about 40 inches. Uh, the, and then it, you know, goes on from there. So I actually size people via DM and email using their bra size as a base um, all the time because it's a it's an actual measurement that you can start from. And also I will then take into account their shape. So, you know, we'll have a conversation if about, you know, do you, would you say that you carry most of your most of your weight up top? Would you say that you carry mostly around your belly? You know, and then we could take it from there. Generally, when I do this, I would say that I'm about say like. 85% success rate, somewhere in that range. Um, but there are usually, there's some people who I know for sure that, you know, uh, I, I know for sure that I've gotten them right. And there's some people who I'm, you know, I'm still deciding between two sizes for them. So especially when it comes to the choose your discount sale, I have been letting people know what item, like how confident I am in the size basically that, that they're doing and that they're, you know, that we're discussing and then they can make their decision from there. So, you know, you want to make sure that if you're buying something final sale, you know your size, you're confident about figuring it out, and that you just have good information overall. Next up, we have Ronit Polantarsha. She is an Orthodox Jewish film and television producer. Since our conversation, she has since gone on to produce Jewish Matchmaking, which is a Netflix hit that she actually teased during this conversation with her. And in this particular clip, she's going to talk about Orthodox Jewish representation in mainstream media. I'm curious, to what extent do you feel a responsibility to give accurate portrayals of the community? Like, are you worried that the work that you're doing is just increasing people's stereotypes and is just making people not like Orthodox Jews more? Oh, well, that is actually like one of the reasons I wake up in the morning, I would say. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't overstate this. I feel that, like you were alluding to earlier, um, you know, there's great responsibility if, if you're put into any position of, you know, being able to make a difference. Um, this is why I do what I do. And this is my single-minded goal. Like, if I had to distill my purpose into one sentence, I would say, if Hashem, you know, put me in a place where I can make a change in this regard, like that's why I'm here. And I will, you know, do everything possible in my power to counteract the negative stereotypes because I think it is deplorable. I think it's awful and horrible and a complete double standard. I think no other community is depicted uniformly negative in the media. No other community would stand for being depicted uniformly negative in the media. Why do you think that we put up with it? I, I, um, I think that a lot of times the people who are, and, and I just want to go back and just say that I, I really do stress the word uniformly because it's open if you show a negative portrayal of an orthodox person and then two weeks later you show a positive portrayal you show a, a negative portrayal of a hispanic person and then two weeks later you show a positive portrayal it's all about the balance because yeah there's good people and bad people in every society but when you're bombarded with 100 percent negativity about a very insular 
hard to understand community, then it's natural that, you know, Bob in Sioux City, Iowa is going to have a negative impression of the Orthodox community. That's all he sees. Like, you almost can't blame him, which you can make a direct link to the rise in anti-Semitism. So to answer your question, why do you think... I think the community that's portrayed most negatively, which is the ultra-Orthodox or very Orthodox people, don't forget, they don't have media. They don't have social media. They don't watch TV. They don't watch movies. They, they're not active in that sphere. So, you know, it's not like they all saw, I don't know, un my unorthodox life, and now they're going to rise up against it. Like, they heard about it third hand, and they're upset, but I don't know, how do you, how do you change Hollywood? Like, they're so far removed from that world. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. And also, I think the Orthodox community, I mean, it could be tied to why is there anti-Semitism? Why, why do people feel free to beat up a Hasidic men on the streets of Williamsburg and there's barely any repercussion? And if you did that to any other minority, like consistently, oh my God, there would be rallies and maybe even riots, you know? So I, I feel that we don't raise our voices enough, honestly. One of the things that I actually am so grateful that I get to do with this show is to do my solo episodes around new design releases because I really like talking about process and I love to I love to hear from other people about how their process is when it comes to creating whatever it is that they do. So the opportunity to do it um, with my designs is is really quite special. And I know that a lot of you love those solo episodes as well. So thank you for listening and for enjoying those. Uh, this comes from the solo episode that I did on the mod dress. Um, and I go into some of my couture sensibilities and how they translated into this design. It is a it is a heavier weight fabric. And because of that, each of the individual threads are on their own very heavy. And when you're working with a classic tweed, there are so many things that you can do by pulling those threads. One of the things that I actually learned when I was learning, you know, when I was in college and one of my favorite techniques that I learned, um, I'm blanking out. Oh, it's called faggoting. Not in an offensive way. This is actually the name of the technique. And there are two types of faggoting. And there are there's one type where it is between two separate pieces of fabric. So you'll have two um, pieces of fabric. You'll finish the edge of both of them. So that's basically putting a hem on them. And then there are all sorts of different embroidery stitching and things that you can do to um, like connect the two pieces. So what ends up happening is that the two pieces end up getting connected kind of like through a suspension system for lack of a better word. So you'll like, you'll thread through one, one piece of the fabric, one, like let's say the left side or let's do it top and bottom because that's easier to visualize and then you can you do like a bunch of chain knots so that you get this like really beautiful knotting effect on the thread and then you'll take the needle and go through um the bottom piece of fabric and then if you do those chain knots you know you do enough rows of them then the bottom fabric is suspended from the top fabric and you get this very cool sheer effect it was one of my favorite things to do and there's two ways to do it you can do it with two pieces of fabric or you can do it within one fabric. So within one fabric, if you pull out the threads of a piece of fabric, but only in one direction. So we're talking about a basic basket weave. So you've got warp threads and weft threads and they go up and down and side to side. And if you take all the threads that go side to side and you take, let's say, a one inch wide section and you pull out all of the side to side threads, then you get a float area like you get this area where you have just the up and down threads and you can take those up and down threads you could leave them as is 
which is just like a beautiful, very light, airy effect to have in the fabric. But you, what you can also do is that you can take thread and wrap around those up and down threads that are going through your fabric, and you can basically create a lace. It is stunning. It takes freaking forever also. But you can, you can like create a lace within your fabric, and it's one of my favorite techniques to work on. And one of the things that, you know, for me coming from a really a, like I have couture sensibilities. Um, I am first and foremost a, a pattern maker and a dressmaker. And for a very long time, uh, you know, I made custom gowns and I did that. When I say I made custom gowns, I mean, I sat and I sewed custom pieces. Um, I still offer custom pieces in my collection, but I'm not sewing them anymore. That is just not possible. Um, I mean, it's, it's possible. It's just not scalable. <laughs> but either way, I I still approach things with the lens of someone who really just wants to make pretty things. And when I came across this fabric of the mod dress and I saw how these threads were structured, I realized that these threads were this fabric was such that I could bring in some of those techniques on a mass scale. When I was putting together the third anniversary episode of this podcast, so a year ago, I knew that Rahama Jaffa Rosenzweig had to listen to her previous episode. It had been recorded almost a year prior because she was kind of towards the beginning um, of the year that I was putting together these clips from. And so we did a revisit. And it was really, it was, it's one of my favorite episodes that I've ever recorded. And it was wonderfully reflective on her part. And I always appreciate how open uh, Rahama is, is willing to be. So in this clip from our revisit, she shares how adjusting expectations, while not necessarily lowering standards, led her to her perfect match. What I was saying with me and Mikey in short, that like, sometimes the things or the people you think that are not for you for different reasons, sometimes you know, lower down your, not your standards, but lower down your, the high horse you're on and realize that like, it might not be what you pictured or what you imagined, but it's still the most amazing things. And it could give you a great life and have amazing life just because it's not exactly what you pictured. I feel like for me, like, like I pictured something so different, but what I got is so perfect for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it definitely fits. And it may not be perfect for the next girl or a different girl that he dated, but it's perfect for me. And it's, 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 I couldn't have got luckier, you know, everybody. I also think that a lot of girls, like, especially when you get older, you get comfortable. So like, you're not, you're looking for reasons to say no to people or you're looking for ways out. Cause like, yeah, being single is, is easier. It is. It just is. You're on your own schedule. You can do what you want when you want, spend your money how you want. It, It definitely is. But like, there's also nothing like settling down with somebody that is like your best friend 24 seven. Yeah. It's a forever sleepover. Yeah. Literally. I literally, someone asked on Instagram last week, like, Oh, what's your, what's your favorite part about living with a guy? I was like, it's like a forever sleepover with really good snacks. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. (laughs) It really is. It's like forever sleepover. Also, Mikey finds me funny when like, I'm not. So like. Fantastic. It works. Yeah, it, it just a lot has changed. You're right. Like also listening to that podcast, like, you know, last night I played it for Mikey at our dinner table. I was like, I'm going on this podcast tomorrow. This is like it. 
but he was like you sound so energetic he's like it's not normal like you're like so like i'm the first plus size he's like you were so like piped up he's like we gotta get that back in you i was like yeah 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 for sure it, it takes just a little bit of insecurity to get that level of hype out of Rahama, oh i think oh my god it was it was literally like i don't know like I was, I was like listening to that podcast. Like I was so hyped up. I was so like excited by Drama. I feel like so much has changed that like it became a little bit on the back burner. But like it's not good. Like I, I need to get back into it. Like I'm just like I'm preoccupied with everything else happening in my life. So like I don't have time to like truly focus on it. And like Mary and Pascal kind of knowingly opened up a huge can of worms when she decided to speak up about how fat people are treated in society. I invited her on the show to share some of the realities on the ground, as well as real change that happened in the short window of time between when she started discussing this and when we recorded our conversation. In this clip, she shares the lasting effects of hearing you'll never find love unless you're small. Oh, man, I have so much to say on it. It's like hard to start, but (sighs) Shadachim. Yeah. It's. You, you know, you mentioned that's how this started. You mentioned that, you know, the worst piece of advice you ever received was that you're never going to get married at your current weight. Is it, able, are you able to like articulate why something like that is so hurtful? Yes. It's hard for me to talk about, but I'm going to, because I want to tell you a few, a few older singles who struggle with weight reached out to me and I really... I'm so happy because this is why I did it. I want everybody to be helped, but I want, if one person doesn't go through the pain that I went through, it was worth exposing myself in this way. Um, So here's the thing. When you're told, I got married in my thirties. So I was told for 10 plus years, the only way you're ever going to get married is to lose weight or no guy is ever going to marry you at your current size. Let's translate that. Okay. You're hideous. You're not attractive. No guy will ever find you attractive. That's what you're being told. And when you're told that enough, you believe it. And so what happens is, and this is what happened to me. I believed it. I didn't believe I was never going to get married. Part of me, maybe a little bit was like doubtful, but I believed I would get married. But what I believed was that one day I would find a man who would be good enough human that he would look past the way I look and appreciate who I am on the inside. And that's terrible because that's not what you're looking for. You're not looking for someone who thinks you're good enough. You're looking for someone and you will find someone who thinks that you're beautiful and that you look beautiful and who's not bothered by your size, but is attracted to you at your size. And here's the, here's the problem. When you're told so many times that you're not attractive and you're not beautiful and you believe it, here's what happened. When I got married and my husband would tell me you're beautiful, I didn't believe him. And I wish I could tell you that that changed, but we're married two and a half years. I'm very happy. He's an amazing, amazing person. And he tells me every single day that I'm beautiful. And every single time he says it, I don't really believe him. And that's so awful. And I don't know if I'll ever fully believe him when he tells me I'm beautiful. 
Shauna Brodman is now the owner of Set With Style in Florida, but her path started as an OT. In this clip from our conversation, she shares what she thinks could have prevented the need for her career change. I do think, and this is my humble opinion, and this could be only it was my school or my city or my education, or I didn't do the legwork for this. But I strongly believe that high school girls do not have enough help choosing a career. I think that it could happen to anyone to change careers, but I very strongly think that there are many, 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 many options out there that people can find fulfilling, and we're only exposed to a very limited number of them. So if I'm going to be choosing between doctor, physical therapy, occupational therapy, special ed, speech therapy, accounting, or in my days, there was probably one more like graphic design. Those were my options. That was what I was exposed to that. That was, you know, these, this is like, you're going to choose one of them. So which one are you going to choose? So process of elimination brought me to OT. I don't think it was the right field for me. And I don't think it's the right field for many, many people that I know that go into their field and, you know, leave it pretty quickly because I just don't feel like there's exposure to the 9,000 other options you can do with or without education, with or without formal, I should say formal degree, college, whatever you want to say. You know, there are so many options out there that everybody can be exposed to and everybody can learn about and really, you know, love what they do as opposed to just choosing from, you know, what what your high school showed you as like the 10 options you're going to choose from. Chelsea Bear is a disability advocate who mostly shows the simple of tasks online walking in this clip she shares how she feels when people stare does it bother you when people look at you funny yeah um it it definitely does it's it's something that i know that i'll never get away from um so there's definitely some moments where i'm like wow i wish i could walk into a grocery store without everybody stopping and turning and looking at me but again knowing that it's something that is never going to change i kind of have always had this mindset People are going to stare at me, so I might as well give them something pleasant to look at, um, which is why I kind of always have a smile on my face. I always kind of want to prove to people that just because I'm disabled doesn't mean I live this sad or, um, you know, unexciting life. So that also kind of contributes to my mentality of just showing people that I'm just a regular person. And, you know, even though I get a lot of stares, I hope to change someone's perspective along the way. Sarah McElroy is an author and journalist who wrote Raise to Rise about those leaving their jobs post-COVID in what became known as the Great Resignation. In this clip, she shares some of the data and why it was mostly women who took part in this major reworking. Why do you think that it was mostly women who, I mean, I don't know if there's any real data to support this, but anecdotally, yes, it seems that it was, oh, there is. Fantastic. There is um, data, yep. So wh- why do you think it is that it was mostly women who you know, made these evaluations and, you know, in droves just started quitting their jobs. Yeah, definitely. Well, so the, the data that I can find as far as the like month by month, great resignation gap, they were able to definitively say women are leading the great resignation at its peak in 2021. The quit rate for men was 4.4% and the quit rate for women was five half percent. Now that's, it's like 1.1 difference but that or percentage point difference, but it's a 25% gap. If you look at it, like that's a, a oh, significantly yeah. higher, you know? So it, it was women. And what they were finding is there was, there was a lot of 
research done by McKinsey and Lean In in their annual Women in the Workplace report. And what they found in 2020 is that women were spending on average upwards of three hours per day in additional, essentially unrecognized labor as childcare and housework and things like that, as safety nets evaporated during the pandemic and we have childcare facilities closing, schools are closing, we don't have as much support from family and friends to help us take care of our kids and responsibilities. It could also be like elder care too, that's part of this as well. Women were spending upwards of three additional hours per day. Now, fast forward one more year, the report comes out again, that number has held strong and one in three working mothers are considering either downshifting or leaving the workforce entirely. Then in April of 2022 of this year, Deloitte did a survey of 5,000 women and found that uh, more than 50% of them are saying that they have increased stress. 40% are saying they're burnt out and have either poor or very poor mental health. And 50% want to quit their jobs in the next two years. On a five-year horizon, that skyrockets to 90%. Only 10% of women from that survey intend to be with their current company five years from now. Like those are red alarm numbers. And if we think about like just all of the inequity that was in the workplace to begin with pre-pandemic, and I was one of those people, I will admit it, like admittedly say, I never wanted to look at gender in the workplace. I felt like very strongly that we should be looking at other forms of diversity and racial and sexual orientation and you know, ethnic, ethnic, all of these things, religious, et cetera. But for me, because of where I came from, and I never wanted to be looked at any differently as a woman. I didn't want to accept that there were gender differences in the workplace, but they really were still there. And now on the other side of it, with all of this extra stress, the 2022 Women in the Workplace report comes out and finds that women leaders are quitting at a rate of 10.5%, the highest that they have ever recorded in the study. The gap between women and men is higher than it's ever been. And to put it at scale, for every one female director promoted to senior ranks, there are two walking out the door. This next episode was a little bit of a combo. It was both the solo episode for The Piping Dress, what turned out to be a very popular piece in the collection, and also about the opening of The Address in American Dream Mall, which was the first in-person, real, physical place where you could go and see my design. So in this clip, I share a little bit of my feelings on that. The space is really surreal. And I know I've said so many times how large it is, but it's so big. And what is crazy about that, aside from the fact that it is enormous, it is also gorgeous. It is like, don't come, I mean, buy something if you want, but come just to see it because it is a gorgeously designed, beautifully put together space, which I think is so difficult to do when you have so many different brands that each have their own identity, but you really do get each brand identity from their space while also having this beautifully cohesive, really just wonderful, wonderfully gorgeous space. And the thing that I keep, I think that the reason why the size of it keeps striking me, you know, the reason why the size of it is something that my brain just keeps going back to. I mean, most of the brands that are in this store, I think almost all of them are for sure less than 15 years old. 
maybe even less than 10. And that's crazy to see the amount of growth that there has been in the modest fashion industry in such a short amount of time. And then when you also consider that, I mean, these are almost exclusively women-owned brands, almost exclusively designed by Orthodox Jewish women, almost exclusively intended for Orthodox Jewish women or any, really anyone who dresses modestly, seeing, and, and a lot of the, the women who run the other brands that are in this space, uh, a lot of them are my friends, and seeing all of this work come to life and be so, I don't know what the word is, just so apparent, you know, it's just so, it's so real, it's so tangible, seeing all of that is it's it that really blows my mind and the fact that there's this giant space with all of these businesses is it's awesome in my work i've gotten the pleasure of knowing lots of people and i consider myself especially fortunate that i've gotten the chance to meet people who are very different from i am and for the most part have been nothing but delighted with spending time with them. And this next episode is with someone who has become a dear friend of mine. Her name is Blair Imani. And she's talking in this clip about anti-Semitism in the most progressive of spaces. I'm a, a progressive, but I'm my own person. And I have also found that the people who are outwardly and openly anti-Semitic and do so in this way that is quote unquote tolerated or allowed, um, they are also against other aspects of me. They're against, um, they are they tend to be extremely homophobic. They tend to be extremely classist. And um, it's like, I think that there are some people in the progressive spaces, I don't, I don't think I know there are people in the progressive spaces who they don't want to get free. They want to duplicate systems of harm. So they just don't want to be the last person. And I had this hilarious, but also kind of insightful discussion about if oppression is a bear that you're being chased by in the forest, then some people are just trying to push down their, their slowest friend so that the bear doesn't get them. And there was a Jewish woman who added in the comments and she's like, well, a lot of people can't even see the bear that's chasing me because all they see me as is a white person. All they see me as is this. And I was like, that's an amazing layer to add to it. And I think that just growing up and seeing how my grandpa kind of suffered in silence, not even being able to claim his Jewish identity because of his own trauma, seeing how erased anti-semitism and how historicized anti-semitism is i think that as as somebody who tries to think the best of people a lot of it is a lack of education so i try to plug in with the lack of education but if people continue to or if people at any point demonstrate an unwillingness to learn and be compassionate i can't mess with them Shoshana Gates-Jaskol is an activist in the Orthodox Jewish community, specifically when it comes to women's issues. Uh, I think she's pretty awesome. And in this clip, she shares the predictable effects of erasing women from Jewish society. When extremism happens and people try to take over with new rules and nobody spits back, nobody pushes back, it gets worse. We saw it progressively in Beit Shemesh. We've, I mean, that's a whole other topic of the extremism, extremism in Beit Shemesh, but we see it in the erasure of women because schools are doing it. Well, you, you honor a couple and only the man is put on a picture. You honor a, a family and there's two guys, you know, like you look at pictures of Tan Shabbos and, and, and Baruch Levine videos of Aisha's Chayel and you have hands, hands representing Jewish women. Where have we gotten to? We have gotten to a point where it's absolute insanity. And so when you don't, I started to say this years ago, when women aren't seen, 
their voices are not heard, and their needs are not met. Whether it's breast cancer, whether it's a gunode in the Dean, right now I'm telling you when you don't see a woman as a full human being, when you can erase her face, of course her freedom doesn't matter. Of course it doesn't. And there are people who will say that's not true. And I know you. there are listeners listening right now saying, absolutely, there's no such thing. It's not the same thing at all. Yes, it is. And I feel confident in telling you that because I've been studying this for over a decade. I have interviewed literally hundreds of Agunot around the world. Not one community, not one um, segment of Judaism, all of them. I remember uh, Faye Sukenik is a wonderful woman. She's a Haredi woman here in Israel, and she herself went through a divorce and her family did not talk to her through her first divorce. Um, and she started an, an organization called Ba'asher Tilchi, which comes from Ruth, which Ruth said to Naomi, Ba'asher, where, where you go, I will go. And it helps Haredi women through the divorce process, not legally, just to be there for them because they are, they are abandoned. When they finally speak up for themselves, they are abandoned because they're stepping out of line. And she said to me, for a, I have this on video if anybody wants to see uh, her interview. She said, Haredi girls are taught, you don't speak out, you don't talk about your problems, you are mevater. She said, to get a woman to be able to advocate for herself in the Beit Din and to say, I want out because I'm in pain, because I don't wanna be hurt, because I need differently in my life, is a whole process because she's been silenced and made quiet and invisible her whole life. One of the things that we did this year was that we revisited Keshet Starr, who is the uh, director of Ora Agunot, which uh, advocates for Agunot in our community. And the truth is that sadly, we're still talking about it. In this clip, she shares why it is in the get refusers' best interest to lower the level of conflict in their divorce. Plain devil's advocate here for a second. The marriage is over. We haven't lived together for, yes. I don't know, let's say a year. We we haven't lived together for a year. There's no chance of reconciliation. We've gone to all the therapy. We've done all the shalom bias work. This is not happening. If I give the get and then I get a, a deal that that I don't like, you know, I give the I do the right thing. I give the get, you know, when when it has become clear that this is not going going back. And then we start negotiating and then we start, you know, ironing out all of the details and then and and so and i am I, i'm speaking as a as a man but we do know I, I feel like we should say this we do know that there are cases where the woman refuses to accept it um for rare sure. but it does happen um so speaking as a man for a second i give the get and then we iron out all the details and i am stuck with an exorbitant amount of child support that i believe is unreasonable my options after that point like I have to go to civil court then I guess right like are it it can be argued from a butt-headed perspective that yes even though it is the right thing to do that I am putting myself at a disadvantage by doing that because even though it shouldn't be that way in a lot of ways it is my best bargaining chip because if she can't get that get then she has to keep talking to me and maybe I don't want to accept that this marriage is fully over so let's keep her talking to me you know, or, you know, maybe there's that kind of warped perspective here. But can it, can't it be argued that by giving the get right away, you are putting, are you putting him at a disadvantage or are you putting everybody on the same footing? I'm thinking out loud here. I'm not, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? 
So a few things. First of all, I would overall say you're putting everyone on the same footing. And that's, of course, keeping in mind that there are so many factors that go into divorce unevenness. I would argue that the biggest factor is who has money and who doesn't, because the representation that you're able to access is such a game changer in divorce. But I would say two things. Number one, I think a lot of people do naturally think that way, and that's why we need a clear social boundary. Because in the moment of a divorce, many people feel anxious, they feel pushed against a wall, it's a scary time, and they might feel a real instinct that I have to keep this get to protect myself. So I, I understand sort of the emotional process that might be behind that, and that's partly why I think it's so important that as communities, we push back. Because if we leave people to their own devices, they will do this because it's scary and it feels like a protection. What I will tell people, though, and what I've told many get refusers is that ultimately this actually doesn't work. And here's why. Divorces can range from higher conflict to lower conflict. Once you are in a higher conflict territory, that means a couple of things. First of all, it means that you will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars getting divorced. So whatever money you had, you're not going to have very much of it at the end. So there's nothing left no, to split up. Exactly. Right. Because okay. everything, your attorney's children will go to a very nice college and mm -hmm. uh, you will have a hard time paying the rent. And so that's number one. And number two, when a divorce is really explosive, what you end up with is a custody arrangement. And I'm using custody as an example because that's often what people are concerned about. You end up with a custody arrangement that is very rigid and you there's no flexibility. If I want to switch nights because I have a family wedding and it would be so nice if my kids came, we're all in court on Monday. It just doesn't work. And so what people end up with is actually less time with their kids because the schedule they have is so restrictive that they don't have the ability to adjust the schedule as they schedules change. You can have a whole custody range worked up and then someone signs up for gymnastics and it's all over. So you actually really need an ability to work together and be flexible in order to allow the custody arrangement to naturally modify as circumstances change. What would happen so in a low conflict people, situation? Would you say? What would happen in a low conflict situation? Let's say, you know, I have that family wedding. I would just call up my ex and say, can we just switch nights? And they would say, okay. Exactly. That sounds easier. You can communicate. There are, in high conflict divorces, you're generally only communicating through secure apps. You're not even texting each other. There's there's very little direct communication because it's too risky. Anytime you want to make a change, you're hiring an attorney to bring it to court. It is, it's, it's really, it comes with almost no flexibility. I know that so many of you told me after my conversation with Goldie Miller of The Perfect Fit that you had a chance to check out her store and purchase. And that makes me so happy. So in this clip, she shares how powerful it has been for her customers to have options. A lot of people who I spoke to were skeptical, surprised. I don't know what the right what the exact right word there would be, but they would say things like, oh, well, don't you know that plus size women just don't spend money on themselves? They don't. Like they don't, they don't care enough to spend that money on themselves. I'm curious if that's something that you've run into also and what your experience with that has been. Um, I didn't have that reaction, but I did have people tell me that they never could find um, nicer things for themselves and that things don't fit. And that makes them really frustrated. 
Um, and especially when they go into a regular store and they don't carry their size about something that they really love. And that's one of the things that I really wanted to do. I wanted you to come to my website and everything is an option for you. Anything that you might like, you can get. It might not fit you and it might not look good on you, but everything you want is an option. Um, and actually, I've had a lot of women come to my pop-ups and be really surprised when they find something that fits them that looks beautiful. Um, and a lot of the time they say, you know, I don't know, like I really don't wear you know, fancier stuff. I, I guess what you're saying is that they don't try and go find fancier looking things because they think that they won't find it. Right. And, you know, they come to my pop-up and they try it on. They're like, oh my God, I didn't even know this existed. This next clip is from the solo episode that I did when the focus dress was released. And that was also when I sized myself up when I went from a 12 to a 14, not because there was anything wrong with the dress or wrong with me, but just because I myself had gotten bigger. And in this clip, I share a little bit of my thoughts around sizing up. And I think that it's important to acknowledge that even when we reach a point in our lives, when we are comfortable in our skin, that does not necessarily mean that we feel that way 100% of the time. In fact, I don't I think that it does not mean that we feel that way 100% of the time. And I know that you've you've heard um, Rahama Rosenzweig from Drama on this podcast say that she would love if I spoke more about posting myself, you know, with my stomach roll showing or whatever. And I've been thinking about what she said a lot, and I still don't really have an answer because there is a certain aspect of this is my job. <laughs> this is what I do. I post myself wearing clothes. And if this is how I look in clothes, well, then I just have to do my job. And I think that for me, which I know is not something that most people have, um, I think that for me, sometimes approaching it as, well, this is my job and this is what has to happen for my job has certainly been helpful. Um, And I also think that a big part has been letting go of the idea that I have to feel 100% confident 100% of the time because I don't. Flourish is an organization providing support for NICU parents. In this clip, the founder, Jody Claristenfeld, discusses the loneliness she felt while her daughter was in the NICU. I also just felt so alone. I, there's there's no other way to say it, and it sounds very trite, uh, feeling so alone. Similar to you, I knew no one that had gone through this experience um, until, you know, out of the woodwork, Someone said, oh, my cousin, you know, this, or you didn't believe that my brother's sister-in-law's, what, you know, things like that. And so, but even then, yes, logically, you know, you're not alone, but who are you going to speak to in order to feel not alone? Because people and myself included, right? When you're presented with a situation with a friend that you don't know what to say, sometimes you say something that is just wrong and Mm -hmm. makes the person feel worse. Well, at least the baby is out of you. Well, yes, but that doesn't mean that it makes it harder, any easier, excuse me, to leave the hospital day in and day out and leave without my child. 
No one expects to give birth and not come home with their child. So having someone that I could talk to who fully understood the experience, there was one nurse that I loved um, in the NICU and she had a very similar experience to mine. And I felt like she totally understood. Even the doctors and nurses there who didn't um, give birth prematurely by virtue of their job and just being such compassionate people, they understand, but their sympathy still didn't rise to the level of empathy. Miriam Shulman is the author of the book, The Archerpreneur, about making it as an artist. In this clip, she shares the things entrepreneurs don't realize are getting in their way. But what people don't talk about is belief in your customer, belief in your audience. And that is where we sabotage ourselves the most. So my favorite way of explaining this is I don't know what, what, what you design, but let's just, let's pretend it's a custom wedding dress and you've worked it out and you think you should charge $10,000 for it. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, she won't want to pay that. Mm. Or, um, you know, they, they won't pay for that for my art or I'm just starting out. So I shouldn't charge that. Or I can't sell now because it's a pandemic. There's a social justice movement going on. There's a recession looming. There's a tsunami in Indonesia. So there's all kinds of brain chatter that happens. And that's where we self-sabotage because we're not believing in our customer. Is it about believing in your customer or really believing in yourself? No, it's believing in them. It's believing in them and loving them because... What happens is we always make everything about us when somebody is making a purchasing decision. So let's just say it's a, a $10,000 couture gown. I, I don't know what you- what you That's okay. That's watch. a good example. We'll use it. Okay. okay. So let's just say it's that. They're not deciding whether Rifki Itzkowitz is worth investing $10,000 on. They're trying to decide if they, if I'm going to buy a gown, I'm trying to decide if I, Miriam Shulman, is worth investing $10,000 in. And if you don't believe in my ability to pay for it, then how can I believe in it? Representative Alma Hernandez serves in the state legislature of Arizona, and she is also Jewish and has gotten death threats from the KKK, casually, as one does. So this is how she handles Jewish hate. This particular clip is honestly a bit eerie listening to now, considering everything else going on in the world, but it also brought me a lot of comfort. That kind of fear that can sometimes exist around being Jewish, I think that a lot of times the best way that that is channeled is, well, you know what a neo-Nazi would really hate right now? Me just living my best life. Like that, and yeah. that's, and that has been the way that I've kind of, you know, tried to, you know, that, that that's my big F you. It's just, well, you know, I really think yeah. you wouldn't like a Jewish woman doing her thing. So that's what, that's what, <laughs> that's we're what motivates me. That's what right. motivates me. And I know that's bad, but I'll give you a perfect example since we're on that topic. One of my, my best friend called me this morning. I literally saw him last, late last night drove back into Tucson late last night and we just got off the phone right before I jumped on with you and he's he's Hispanic he's Catholic you know the his only connection to the Jewish community is really me mm -hmm. and my and my family and he he just he was really quiet and I was like is everything okay 
because we usually are very loud and crazy with each other. And um, he said, friend, I'm really sad. And I said, why are you sad? And he said, because the first thing when I woke up, I saw on Instagram a video of the Jewish community in Florida being like harassed by like these Nazi guys. And of course, I saw the video yesterday, right? But unfortunately, we kind of become just like a little mean to these things. Like, I'm like, oh, just another ass. Sorry. No, <laughs> another a-hole. <that's, A-hole. laughs> that's appropriate. A-hole. It's fine. <laughs> another, another, you know, not nice person. Sorry. A very not nice person just making another statement that's, that must make them feel really empowered, right? But he said something that really, like, kind of impacted me in a way because we hadn't really talked about it. And he just said, friend, I'm really sorry. And he said, I feel really bad. And I said, uh, oh, I'm like, well, thank you so much for like calling me and telling me this. Like, I really appreciate it. Um, he just said, it made me really sad that we're in 2023 and, and this is still happening. This next clip is from the solo episode I did around the release of the shift flutter dress. And this style was created because a lot of people have insecurities around the waist seam and I wanted to create a version of the flutter dress without one. So let's dive into that hang up around waist seams. This insecurity around a waist seam was one that I didn't really understand, especially because, and I've done this as an experiment in my line, I have pieces in the line that are fitted through the waist, but do not have a waist seam. Um, and they're, they're fitted in a little bit of a different way than uh, they would be if they did have a waist seam. But I'm thinking of things like the piping dress, the all-American dress. These are all pieces that are fitted through the waist and through some clever tricks in the hem and things like that. I'm able to get a little bit of volume towards the hem. And may and and have that same kind of look and feel but without a waist seam and I do find that there's a little bit of a lower barrier to entry to those styles because once we have that mental block about the things that we think we cannot wear it becomes easier to approach something even if it has a similar silhouette than it would otherwise so I just thought this whole idea of a waist seam was so funny because you can get you know something that is fitted through the waist is it's fitted through the waist. Like it didn't even really the, the actual presence of that line of that seam was not significant to me. So I never really clocked it. And then, uh, yeah. And then I, I kept hearing it from other people and, and that was what really brought it to my attention. And that brings me to the flutter dress. So the flutter dress, if you're not familiar with it is the best selling piece in my line, I would call it my signature piece. Um, it is definitely something that I'm probably the most well known for. And it's also my most copied piece in the line. I know who you are, by the way. And it's something that is a really unique from a construction point of view, especially the sleeve with that built in lining. Um, it, it is very, it's it's a, it's a, it's a signature kind of piece. You know, it's a very specific kind of piece and it's also a really different sort of piece. It has it's a really easy piece to wear. It's a really it's a really beautiful kind of just floaty piece on and it's something that a lot of people want to try. And it does have a waist seam. And what I found so interesting again and again and again when it came to the flutter dress, if there was someone who was trying it on with me either around or they were messaging me as they were trying it on at home more times than I thought I would. I would hear something along the lines of, I ordered this against my better judgment. I really felt like 
I can't wear anything with the waist seam, but I loved it so much that I decided to just go for it anyways. And I am shocked at how well this fits. I am shocked at how much I don't mind the waist seam. I am shocked at how this works for me. Mussy Epstein is a stylist and a friend. And in this clip, we are going to explore the issue of body image and how she approaches it with her clients. I don't even want to speak from that place of struggle because I do not know what it would be like for someone plus size. Um, I just know that I want people to know that they can feel good no matter their size, even if it's going from a size zero to a size four. I think any change for anyone is going to be a very personal and slightly traumatic experience because one day you wake up and you're like, wait, what is going on here? This is not, I'm not used to this. And the second you get used to something, it changes. Right. Uh, and then, you know, something like being pregnant and giving birth to a human, for some people, it's very easy to just look at it as that, that they gave birth to a human and it's a beautiful thing. And some people it's harder. And I think it's never going to be a hundred percent, like you said, because it's also such a personal experience and we can never generalize or really quantify everyone's experience into one statement because everyone right. feels differently. Right. So you're right. It's just a very interesting conversation to have. And right. I think like, Part of me is like, oh, I can't believe I'm having this conversation because, I mean, I'm not a big person. I know I'm definitely lucky I'm on the smaller side. But for me, like, over the years, I've definitely gone up and up. And I do know what it feels like to just wake up and not really like what's going on. Um, and I think that there's just so much judgment on ourselves and on others, whether someone's too skinny or too big or not skinny out you know it's just like it's never ending we're because we're not just critical of ourselves we end up being critical of others and it's just it's an interesting cycle that we put ourselves in there are very few people in the Jewish world known only by their first name and Francisca is one of them she is someone who likes to bring up issues, likes to stir the pot a little bit on her show, The Francisca Show. And in this clip, she discusses what makes a kosher versus not kosher issue. So the acceptable issues, do you mean by kosher issues? I just mean like, I feel like there are there are hardships that we allow people to have. Like miscarriage. So, I'm so yeah. happy you're bringing this up. I just had a conversation a couple of months ago with somebody. Kosher issues and non-kosher issues. <laughs> and the reason you're more taboo is because you talk about the non-kosher issues. Meaning somebody who has a hard time dating and they're single for a long time. That's a kosher issue. Right. You know, if if you're having um if you have some interesting sex kinks and, and you can't control yourself and you're cheating on your spouse, that's not a kosher issue, you know, or, um, okay, not even cheating on your spouse, but you, you sleep in one bed because you don't want to have two beds in your house. That's something that just comes to mind, you know, something private. That's not a kosher issue. What's another not kosher issue? Eating not kosher or not keeping Shabbos, not kosher issue. Would you call that? No, I'd like see. How to about me, this? To be being these... in non-shomer and a gear relationships, not kosher issues. Yes, but I think that I think that the the distinction having for... mental health issues, kosher issue, right? Yeah. But I also think that like having mental health issue is let's say let's like you said like a kosher issue versus a not kosher issue, and I think that you're defining like cocaine is not kosher issue, right? But Zoloft and now we have what's what's the name of the new um... Ozempic? 
Ozempic. That that's a kosher. kosher. Yes. So like, I think, yes, there's that. Overweight, being overweight, kosher issue. Let's talk about, that's very relatable. Let's talk about eating disorders and, um, you know, everything related to that kosher issue. Talking about um, struggling with your faith, not kosher issue. What do you think is the difference between a kosher issue and a not kosher one? Infertility, kosher issue. I I think what's out of your control versus what seems to be in your control, potentially. Or something that violates halacha, something that doesn't violate halacha. Right. See, I put those in two separate categories. But yes, I, I hear the I hear the difference. This idea of like infertility is not something categories. that you did, right? Like what is it? Like 25% of women will miscarriage will miscarry in their life or something like that. Um as opposed to like if you are struggling with eating kosher, that's something that you are actively doing. So just don't do it. One of my favorite episodes every year is the one that I get to do with my mom around Mother's Day. And based on the feedback I've gotten, I know that you guys are all fans of hers also. Me too. So it works out for everyone. And on our episode this past year, we spoke about why it works for me to run a business from her house. We also debate the level of stuff that I have laying around the house. And I would also like to just say and I can get the final word because it's my show. Since this has been recorded, the levels of containment have definitely risen and there's nothing of mine on the main floor of the house, which will make sense after you, you know, listen to the script clip or go back to the whole episode. Well, we work with each other. You know, when stuff comes up, when, when, oh, I remember when in the very beginning I told you you can have the room, but I need to have it workable when I need extra bed space. Remember, right. there used to be a high-riser here. Right. In the very, very, very beginning, there was a, there was a high-riser. And I said, I need, when I need access to that bed, you need to provide it to me. Which you told me you would, but then there was just so much stuff on it that at some point that was just ridiculous. You're lucky I never yeah. needed it because yeah. it, it got buried. It, no, I mean, it if got it, buried if it, and then we gave it away. Right. If it had really needed to happen, then... I could have, then I could have worked it out, but right. we just never, it didn't really ever get to that point. And now we have a situation where there, we do use this right. room. But I have, I have, I have rollaway beds. Right. Right. So we have the, the beds that we, the, um, if, you know, we can either put babies in here in pack and place because right. they're contained or we can put adults. Like who, teenagers. Right. Who know not to touch stuff. Who know, right. Um, and who won't get hurt from like sewing machines. From sewing machines and won't go exploring and stuff like right. that. You that. can't put a three-year-old in here. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah, that would be a very bad You idea. can't do that. But if someone's in a playpen or someone's... In, and we have the rollaway beds. Right. So, you know, things came up. And, and also, to be perfectly honest, it works because I choose not to see that your stuff is all over the house. I would like to clarify. Does, oh, please. I am not done. No, <laughs> please. <laughs> All over the house is a strong state. Every floor of this house true has something of yours that is business related. A fair. Okay. Fair. Every floor. I will give that. However, mm. however, they are contained. Mm. Large containers. No, they are not. <laughs> no, they are not. The closet that has all of your extra fabric is spilling out all over the door doesn't close. Let's get real. Oh, that's true. I forgot about that. Closet. The door does not close. That's the true. back room. Do you want that door to close? I could, I could make that door close. That would be very, that would be lovely if that I'm, door closed. By the time this episode is published, <laughs> that door will close. 
Um, so it works because I. But also, let's not pretend like my stuff is the only stuff that's no, making a mess in the basement. I didn't say that it is. I didn't say that it is. But you have. I gave you an entire closet. First, it was it was only going to be this bedroom. And then it spilled over into your bedroom, which you did clean which out. Which I cleared out, right. You cleared out now that we switched around your whole room. Right. And put in the bunk beds and, and whatnot. So you right. did clear it out. But there was a significant amount of time when your room was storage. Right. Remember all your patterns were in your old dresser? Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> that was nice. And then it became the, I don't even know what they're called. They're not mannequins. Those things that hang. Oh, they're, um, they're hangers with boobs, basically. Yeah. They're, they're called, um, they're called half mannequins, I think, or something like Whatever. that. Whatever. So we've yeah. got at least really, a dozen of those down in the basement. If anybody wants one of those, by the way, DM me. You can have them if you can get them from Queens. I really just need to get rid of them. Oh, so. for the love of God, somebody want them. <laughs> <laughs> I've given away Thank a handful you. of them already. I just had oh, so many. Oh, have you? Yeah, oh, I've given okay. away, like, probably, like, maybe ten of them And already. then you needed the closet for the fabric. Right. And then you needed the back room for your boxes. Yes. That's, I think, the biggest nuisance is, is the pile you of boxes. Know, so I have decided not to make myself crazy about this. She has her very zen face on, guys. No, really. Because I could have told you, I didn't, you know, I could have told you, no, it's enough already. It's enough already. Right. But I'm figuring this is all temporary. Right. It's temporary. I mean,. Look, you've been here for years. I don't know how many more years it'll be. But at some point, right. you know, you will need a bigger space or you will move or whatever the situation will be, and this will be temporary. And I don't know. The house has always been... It's a house. It's not a museum. And, ever, you know, so I tried to do what people needed. The translation of it's a house, not a museum, is that my stuff is not the only stuff that sits in piles around the house. I but want to make that very clear. Fair enough. Yours Mine is, is the, absolutely the most. Absolutely the most I will give you, but it's not like if all my stuff... By far. <laughs> it's not like if all my stuff went away, it, it would be spotless. It would be significantly less. <laughs> this is from my conversation with Shandy Plotzker, who is an Orthodox Jewish singer and songwriter. But in this clip, she shares about never seeing herself as a songwriter and what it took for her to move past that and start releasing original music. I never viewed myself as a songwriter, ever. Um, even though, and this goes back to exactly what I was saying before, that sometimes we don't see who we are or like our own greatness because we're from the inside and we're just like, oh yeah, yeah, but you know, but if we were watching somebody else do what we're doing, we'd be like, wow, you're incredible. That's so cool, you know? So I definitely had that in terms of songwriting because growing up, even though I, as a teenager, like I was hired to write people's family birthday songs and, you know, parents' anniversary songs and 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 songs up to about them, like, you know, to commemorate someone that they lost. Um, I was doing that all the time and I was constantly writing songs about the career that I'm in now. I didn't always them out. It was like someone would come to me with a song and I would, um, I don't even think I fully trusted myself to write an entire song. I think it was easier that way. If someone came to me with the bones and I was like, oh, here's the meat. You know, and I kind of what, like, what does that look like when you say like someone's giving you bones of a song? Like someone else has written melody and you're adding lyric, or like what does that practically? Well, look no, because like? that that would be like that would be the whole old lyric. But I'm saying someone would come to me with like a basic idea of a song, or like you know lyrics. I don't I don't like to actually use specific stories in case like it ends ever ends up hurting someone. But like imagine that someone came to me with a song about I don't know like dishwasher soap, <laughs> you know, and I want to hear it. 
yeah by the way guys dishwasher soap coming your way and um and it was like a, a good song but it needed a lot of tweaking so i was like oh okay this is great let me fix it up i would not consider that a song that i wrote because oh, okay. even if like they brought to you a, a song about dishwasher soap and you're like but wait we need to talk about the sponge and the sink and like yeah. everything that's happening around <laughs> this soap and all of Pretty the much. things that this soap could grow up to be and what about the pot that the soap is cleaning so you're starting with like a whole different you you take it into a completely different direction and even though you're putting a lot of work into it you don't necessarily think of it as your song most definitely this next clip from the solo episode that I did around the drawstring dress is all about dressing for summer. There's actually some great tips in there around um, like how to just be comfortable dressing modestly in the heat. But in this clip, I talk about the absolute garbage that it is around trying to get a summer body. I don't want you to be thinking about, and I hope that you're trying not to, um, or maybe you're not, but for me at least, this nonsense garbage about like getting a summer body we have better things to do in our lives than worry about the different ways our bodies are perceived only because of the season. Like, there, I we just have better places to be, better things to be talking about, better things to just be occupying our space with than, well, what are the new ways my body is inadequate because now it is warmer outside? And I understand that there's a certain pressure here around like a, a bikini body or something like that, that if you dress modestly, you might not feel perfectly frankly because you're not displayed in that way. Um, and in a way we are, I think, uh, I was just about to say that in a way we are kind of free from that, but I don't know if that's true. In, I, I hmm. I don't think that people who dress modestly have less pressure to look a certain way, but maybe we don't have that specific pressure of looking good in a bikini. I'll, I'll give you that. But I think that the fact that this type of messaging is just rampant this time of year, I think that to say that that doesn't affect us on some level, I think that's foolish. And I actually recently saw the best thing. It was something like, it was something like, I'm not, I'm not working for my summer body. I'm working for my old lady body, strong bones, good back, you know, great knees, something like that, which I thought was great. Robin Schick is one of like technically super, super close family friends, but like that is not enough. Robin Schick is my aunt, even though we're not technically related. And she is also a super talented and experienced educator uh, who has worked with both boys and girls. And in this clip, she's discussing why she thinks that social media has possibly been more damaging for boys than for girls. They're more likely, I, I think, in the most part, to be risky. They're just more likely, which is why I, I cringed cringe every every year multiple times when they came to show me their driver's license and I'm like oh no you know because they do I'm I, honestly there's not many a year there wasn't a crash thank god nobody you know because okay so because they're risky they're risky with a lot of things you know and if they if they feel I think it's, it's kind of funny girls want to want to do better do better do better do better Boys give up more easily. Boys like, no, I'm just gonna. There was a place in 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 the library of the school in, in DRS where you could 
totally hide. I love these things. I totally hide. So I, I knew that place. And you just would have kids who would just go there and just, you know, either put on the, some of them weren't even on the internet, by the way, some of them were listening to music, these big headphones. And, and, you know, I'm like, uh, do you think you maybe should go to your chemistry class? Nope. <laughs> okay. I was like, okay, I should know how to ask a question. Because <laughs> I guess it should even go. He said, no, that's an answer. Right. One of the major things, one of the major milestones that I reached over this past year was the ability to expand the collection to also include sizes 26 and 28, which was something I had been working towards for a long time. And it was very special to get to do it. And when it came time to talk about how we're going to publicize that, how we're going to let people know, uh, I was speaking with my friend, Miriam Pascal Cohn, who you heard from earlier in this episode about what was the best way to do it? And she suggested that we go live together to talk about all of the all of the everything that goes into sizing in the fashion industry and to raise awareness for the fact that my collection was now going to be available in sizes 26 and 28. And she did. It is a fantastic episode that you should definitely go back and listen to if you haven't already. And in this clip, we discuss bias in the fashion industry. And when I expanded my size range, what happened was twofold. I got a reputation as being a plus size line. And there were some stores that had a um, a hesitancy to carry something in a size two that was also available in a size 24. They felt like smaller women would not want to wear what larger women were also wearing. Um, almost universally across the board, whenever I say this, everybody's jaw drops. It's just, I just don't think that it's true. Um, I don't know, maybe just people say it's not true to me because they don't want me to think that they're a bad person. I won't think that you're a bad person if you disagree with me on that. But well, I think, I think we all know that's true, at least in the like high fashion, not talking about from fashion, but in like, you know, the, the high fashion, like fashion week kind of things, like those brands do not want fat people what? wearing their clothing. 100%. Even if it's not intentionally and, and if it's kind of- Oh, it's like... intentional. Fashion is mean. Okay, it's but intentional. I'm saying, let's, it let's just let's just say that even if someone has good intentions and doesn't realize and there, there's definitely like you know it's so clear there's bias against fat people so 100 there's, there's 100%. a little bit of that you know people have an implicit bias they don't necessarily realize it so it's bound to filter through to your actions and by the way we i rifki and i discussed this in our podcast episode but if you have not yet taken it google implicit bias test there's um it's, it's from Harvard. Is it from I'll, I'll Harvard, I think? Yeah. It's phenomenal. And by the way, I have implicit bias against fat people. So don't think you're bad if you do. Like I, even after all my stories, I still come up with a, a small bias. Um, to his credit, my husband is not, which is cool. Because um, <laughs> I don't know anyone who doesn't. Like everyone who takes tests says, even people are sure they have no bias. They take it and they say, yes, they have a bias. Um, so I think even when someone's not being malicious, there's always, and I'm not saying nobody malicious but i'm just saying like let's say someone is not trying to be malicious there's just that implicit bias against fat people and it's like yeah, you know it's, it's there regardless jwow or jewish women of wisdom is an organization for connection among older jewish women which i just thought was such a cute idea and i got to speak with the three lovely ladies who are the founders uh and this is one of them, Miriam Hendelis, describing when she felt her life changing, entering a new phase. I think, I think, thank you for asking that. I think it's when my oldest one got married. Um, I think this started changing. Um, I have five sons and my youngest, my oldest is 
13 years older than my baby son. So basically on, you know, he had his bar mitzvah right um, when I was six weeks postpartum from my, from my youngest. I am stressed so, um, just listening to that. Wow. Yeah. And it was right after the, the Northridge earthquake, which was 1994, 55 people never passed away. It was a major earthquake. Um, I don't know if it's, you're too young to know about it, but I'm not going to go there. Um, I'll take your word for it. It doesn't sound fun. It was a huge earthquake, 6.7 and biggest earthquake in the, in the history of LA recently. Anyway, and, and it was in the city. It wasn't in, in you know, you put still in the middle of, of the ocean. Anyway, my oldest son got married and I, I started realizing the, the relationship between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. I don't have daughters and I have sons. And I had, then I had a daughter-in-law who I adore, my oldest daughter-in-law, and I adore all of them, but this was the first one. I started writing. And I started writing about this, this, I always knew I was a writer because in, in high school, I was the editor of the newspaper and I was, had a, I was involved with the yearbook and writing my, English was my favorite subject. I taught English in Basiago here in LA for like 10 years. When I started realizing that I want to write professionally and I want to see if I can get published and they started liking my stuff, the first a local paper in LA would take it. And, and I started realizing that this idea is a new it's a new stage for me. It's a new stage. It's, it's something different. It's something. There's something different about this stage. It's more. It's more. Um, live and let live. It's not trying to. We're not raising our kids anymore. We they we have raised them already. Now it's their turn to raise their kids. Now it's their turn. They're under new management. A friend of mine, Shirley Levovics, who's a well-known therapist, and um, you're laughing. It's fantastic. I love that. Under new management. It's so true. She wrote a book. She wrote a book about Shidduchim and how to navigate the Shidduch stage with, for, for daughters, which doesn't apply to me because I didn't marry off daughters. But she one time joked with me. She says, my next book is going to be called Under New Management. She already had the title. You know, thank you very much for your advice, mother-in-law, sister-in-law, older, you know, whatever. But you're not in charge anymore, you know. And this is something that I, I was preparing for my whole married life this next clip is from the solo episode i did when the wrap dress was released and that was pretty much the first design that i made as a result so far the only actually design that i've made as a result of wanting something more modest specifically in a specific style and in this clip we're going to talk about why i hate talking about modesty talking about modesty makes me deeply uncomfortable because i was taught that in my head being modest was always a synonym for sit down and shut up um neither of those are things that I subscribe to and neither of those are things that I'm particularly good at and that's fine because as an adult who has developed an adult perspective on modest dressing I know that that's not true um and that there's a deeply flawed way way that we teach modesty um and particularly when we take the approach that it is a girl's responsibility to cover up so that a boy should not think something inappropriate there's a whole lot of messed up layers there for girls and boys thinking like thinking that all men are pigs is not a great way to approach the world and for men to think that you know or boys to think that all men are pigs is really not a great way to think about the world so 
I actually made a very conscious decision when, you know, I design modest clothes because that's what I wear. That's what I know I want. I design clothes for people like me. And, and also because I am so committed to how women, specifically modest dressing women, think about themselves and, and changing the way that they think about themselves. And I think that the way that we teach modesty or tzniyas is a, is a huge part of this overall problem with how girls are taught to think about themselves. Probably the most important episode that I recorded over this past year is the one that you're just about to hear a clip from, which was my conversation with Nahama Wasserman. Nahama Wasserman is currently still, to this day, waiting for a get from her ex, well, not technically ex, but they haven't lived together in nearly a decade, David Wasserman. Uh, as the case stands right now, David is actually currently in jail for unpaid child support with the offer on the table that if he pays the child support, then he can if he, excuse me, not pays the child support with the offer on the table, that if he gives the get, they'll forgive the child support and he can go free and he's in jail. So there's that. And in this clip from our conversation, Nahama talks about the responsibility of David's family. Here are the facts. He's living in an apartment right now, $2,100 a month, driving a car, going to Seven Eleven, getting coffees multiple times per day, paying for gas, car insurance, um, lawyers, uh, excessive filing fees to file like I had to he filed an appeal I had to then get an appeals attorney give a new $5,000 retainer he had to do that too like where's the money coming from he ordered emergency quick transcripts from the three days before that cost I don't know probably five to eight hundred dollars like you know it's just um help is coming from somewhere and when siblings are like but we're not involved. We haven't spoken to him in three years. It's like, well, someone in your family is to figure out who. One of the women who I consider myself so fortunate to have gotten to know through my work in the mainly Orthodox fashion industry is Mary Grunhouse of Mika Fashion. She is a light and a Sherpa, as she says. And in this clip, she talks about the how her feelings are really around tying herself so closely to the kintsugi motif. The kintsugi motif, those like gold lines and gold brushes and things like that is something that you've been using in your collection for quite some time. Do you ever get bored of it? Like, do you ever want to be like, I just want to make something tie dye and rainbow. Like, is there ever a time when you, when you like, when you regret tying yourself so closely to this concept that has such a strong visual motif that you are always following so this is such an interesting and excellent excellent question there are many sides of this my personal purpose side no i don't regret it because i am not a fashion designer i'm a sherpa my 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 job is to take the women from point a of brokenness to point z whatever letter you want Sherpa. Uh, Sherpa is officially the name of this podcast episode. That's fantastic. That's such a good way to describe it. But that's what I am. So if that is what I am, how can I not be tied to Kintsugi in, in fashion? Financially, it is very difficult because the stores had enough, right? They right. had it. They have the same shoppers. Their shoppers have it. The quality is so good that doesn't get destroyed so easily. It's not Forever 21 that after a few washes, you need to get a new one. Mm -hmm. So they're not actually, stores told me that. They told me to lower the quality so people will come back and buy more of it. 
Ah. I just, you know, I'm still incongruent with my ethics and compliance background that I don't do that. But um, so there, there's two sides of it. And because there is the, the financial side, um, you know, my husband is, uh, is had two strokes, so he no longer works. So the entire job of providing for my family is on my shoulders. So I, I do have some pieces that are not Kintsugi. And actually for next collection, I'm going to have a whole collection that's not Kintsugi. Kylie Orlobel is a digital marketer and a convert to Judaism. And she, in, in our conversation, she speaks about, you know, coming up in the entertainment industry as the same time, you know, discovering Orthodox Judaism at the time she was dating a man who she is now married to, and he had grown up religious, uh, but was not at the time. And so as she was converting, he was also in the process kind of becoming uh, more affiliated. And in this clip, she talks about what that meant for his very successful comedy career. Yeah. And he was, you know, incredibly funny. The first time I saw him, I it was like, it was again kind of like going to Chabad for Shabbat. I was transported to another level. Like when you see good stand comedy, you're just transported to another world. Just how hard you laugh. <laughs> and after he got off stage, I was amazed because he was in this basement performing for like 30 people. And I'm like, you should be in a stadium, <laughs> you know? So that was really hard for him because we both knew that he was amazing and he was going to make it. And at the same time, I was kind of like putting the the kibosh on that now I wasn't I was still helping him and I actually became his manager his publicist trying to help him but just that big logistical thing of not being able to work on Fridays and holidays really uh put a dent in him Nahama Birnbaum is not known for her story. She's known for her grandmother's. Uh, she wrote the book, The Redhead of Auschwitz, about her grandmother's story of survival. And in this clip, we talk about the lack of Holocaust education today. So he said it's going to give people inspiration and strength. And also it's important, the Holocaust um, memorial. And I also, when I started writing, didn't know how many people do not did not know what the Holocaust was. That was my grandmother's mission. She didn't know, they didn't know what, what happened. What type of, 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 see, this again, blows my mind because again, we're both, you know, granddaughters of survivors to not know the Holocaust seems to be right. like right. I- inconceivable. Like not knowing the Holocaust is like not knowing that Thanksgiving is a thing. Like it's just, that's exactly what I feel like. And it's feeling not knowing the Holocaust feels like not knowing how to breathe. Literally, it's just it's just yeah. part of it's just part, part of, of my, part of my existence. Right. It's just, it's just there. I'm, and my I, grandmother would always say, people don't know. People are forgetting. People are forgetting. And I, I, I'm embarrassed to say, but I used to be like, Bobby, everybody knows what the Holocaust was. Stop it. What are you so scared of? Like something like as major as this, a genocide of six million people is not going to be forgotten. Like that wasn't even my mission. But when I was starting to write it, and it was so hard for me to write, I needed to find more reasons to write it. Besides for my internal, like, I don't know, I want to tell the story. So I I was researching and the numbers were staggering, astounding for me. I couldn't believe how many people didn't know about the Holocaust. And, and even, so I wrote it like five, six years ago. Today's is even worse. There's no education about it in schools and things like that. But that's not that was really her mission. And it morphed into mine when, when I was writing to educate. 
Kim Appelt is a celebrity stylist who also works with private clients. And on this clip, she discusses how she helps her clients shop their closet. And it is a great trick that anybody can use. They'll have a skirt or something or a blazer they want to keep or jeans. And I'm like, that's fine. You can keep it. Because on the first edit, there's a lot of like, oh, I need this. I need that. And so I'm like, hey, that's fine. But I need you to style these jeans or this skirt or this blazer three ways. And like, we'll put them out on the bed and I'll, let's say, let's say it's a skirt and I'm like, okay, what tops from your wardrobe can go with this? And then they'll go find them. And then I'm like, and what shoes go with those? And then it's just, it's kind of like an exercise for your brain. So you're right. It does save time and it can be easier when dress A goes with shoes B. That makes sense. But what if you could, you know, grow a little bit and, and actually make some really cool combinations and spend less money? Dr. Marcy Forda founded the organization Atzmi to help combat eating disorders among Jewish girls. She specifically geared this program, incorporating Torah ideals and concepts, and it is being taught in schools and is a really, really fantastic program. And on this episode, we discuss a little bit about what led her to found the program, how it works, and all of that. And we also discuss some of the things that you know, make us more prone to eating disorders as Jewish women and specifically Jewish girls. And in this clip, she discusses the perfection ideal. They feel a lot of the time that their moms are perfect, right? They they have a baby and they they right away, either they're going back to work or, you know, they're back to lunches, they're back to having company over for Sabbath, they're back to, you know, helping with the homework and doing everything in their career. Um, and they feel that their moms are perfect. This is almost impossible for them we know no one's perfect. We know the mothers are struggling and they don't want to put that burden on their children, but they don't understand that if they don't let their child know that, that being perfect is not expected. It's not normal. It's it. We're going to have struggles. We're going to have, you know, difficult things that we can't do or whatever. We're going to need to ask for help. If we don't normalize that, then we are actually making it very difficult for our children. This next clip is from the solo dress that I did around the release of the pleat dress. And part of the process of making the pleat dress that was so exciting was that I got to do something new with that self-covered belt. So this is a little bit more on that. I was speaking with my factory and I explained to her what I wanted to do. And I had had other subcontractors that I had worked with in the past to do things like bias tape or covered buttons or like little notions like that. If you think about the drawstring dress, for example, the actual drawstring that is around the waist, that needs to be made by somebody else it's a special equipment so you send them the fabric and then they make it from it and that kind of thing but the doing the belts is its own thing it's its own specialty there's all sorts of extra equipment there's all sorts of extra steps there's all sorts of extra stuff that goes into making a belt and um, it would actually it really took me to back to the beginning of the the, the whole company because the way that I found the belt guy was the same way that I found my original factories, which was I was in the garment center and I just started Googling belt manufacturers and made phone calls and anyone who didn't pick up the phone, I went to the address that was listed and spoke to who I needed to speak to and saw their operations. And I mean, the difference between my level of knowledge now and then is shocking, staggering really. Um, so this was, you know, a two hour process as opposed to them when it was like, a two-week process but it was really really nice to find it was really nice to find uh, and I'm very happy with who I ended up going with they did beautiful work uh, super super high quality stuff and the pleat dress has a really nice big buckle belt Nahami Tenenbaum is a 
good and dear friend of mine, and she recently made a huge change in her business. She renamed from Carmella Cosmetics to Defiance Beauty. So in this clip, she talks about setting ego aside and doing what is best for the business. Really hard as business owners, especially when you have certain expertise. Like my expertise lies in marketing and business. Like I literally have an MBA in marketing from like mm-hmm. university. Like, you know what I mean? And I'm saying that because I had to like take away my ego and be like, he's right. Like, you know, talk to my team, talk to this new team, discuss things and realize like sometimes it's really important to just listen to people who have a lot more experience than you. And of course it has to resonate with you. And of course you can't, you know, ignore the your own, you know, gut feeling. But it's really important to to try to combine the two. So he was said to me, he was like, how does that feel to you? And I was like, you know what? It feels really good. So at the end of the day, yeah, Carmela Cosmetics is my baby, but like Defiance Beauty to me sounds so much more compelling and richer. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I, so- I do hear it. I hear it. And the way that you phrase it, like, again, like I know all the background with the carom and everything. So like I attach that meaning. But if you you don't need to you don't need to like put a footnote on Defiance Beauty. I know exactly what it's about. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a fantastic like, name. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just um, and it's funny because we couldn't we have to trademark it Defiance Beauty by Nakami. Mm. So that was also another thing because my name wasn't in Carmela at all. Besides for, well, it became part of it. Like, I think people started realizing, uh, you know, associating Nakami with Carmela, like random, like dating events, people come over to me and be like, are, are you Nakami from like the makeup? And I'm like, <laughs> yes, I am. Thank you. Not the time for this. <laughs> right. Let's not, let's, let's move on. But yes. <laughs> but yes, yes. Um, so yeah, how do you, hard, sorry, how do you feel about how do you feel about your name being on it? This is like this is the first time that it's like by Nahami. This is some like it, it is something that you've created. Yeah, so I I feel very it's a combination of nerves and also being proud of it. You know what I mean? Because this is also another baby. Esther Goldstein is a trauma therapist who is in practice in the five towns. And in this clip, she discusses why we repeat harmful behaviors. If I could just comment on that, like, of course you think that way. Of course you think that way, like just put the drug down or just put the needle down. Of course you do. The same way I could have a friend who's calling me about a relationship that she's in. And all I think about is this person does not, cannot give her what she wants. Like, why does she keep dating him? Or I can hear a teenager that literally keeps going back to the coolest kid in the class, keeps ignoring her and shaming her. Or I could listen to the lady who keeps going to the same, you know, desperately wanting to belong to the same social group. And she's going to these, you know, gym classes because she's desperate to belong. And all I'm thinking is, woman, retain your dignity. Don't put that energy in. And we're going to find you better friends so that you're not chronically feeling like a misfit and like you're losing your self-respect. But here's the thing. Of course, we're thinking that. And there's health in that because it's just like a... Wow, we're seeing that this behavior is not getting you to where you want to go. Now, here's the piece. When somebody's reaching for, if somebody's desperately trying to belong in a social group or someone's reaching for that needle, I know you're thinking, oh, there are two different ends of the spectrum. Of course they are in terms of functioning. But what I'm thinking about, and I'm going to sound like a trauma therapist here just for a second, but what I'm thinking about is who's the little in, who's the little child inside of them and what are they desperate for? Because when I see this 42-year-old woman going to this gym class, I see, and I see her desperation to, to be liked. I see a little child. I, I'm looking for the emotion. There's like a desperate need to like, could you just like me? Could you just like me? 
and that little kid doesn't have capacity to see. This is a 42-year-old woman who actually has two best friends from childhood who really adore her, a husband who loves her, and children who respect her to the moon and back. She's feeling like a little kid who's saying, who's saying can, can I belong? Could you think I'm cool? I just want to be part of you. And that's what we want to work with because what's happening there is that there's some kind of belief, there's some kind of behavior that this person is engaging in and they don't, they're not oriented to the possibilities of being able to engage with other kinds of people. And just so you know, in terms of good healing or even with like the addict, so to speak, we don't tell them just stop the behavior. What I say is I want to work with a part of you that feels like this is the only possible option. You wake up and your brain goes right there. And so I want to work with that part of you that in that moment, because there's a belief and there's a there's literally something called procedural learning. I teach a lot about this in a trauma training where our brains literally learn certain behaviors. Like if I come out every single day from my house and I turn to the right to go, you know, to my son's school and I realize that at a certain point that's there, I hit traffic. And really, if I get go to the left, I'm going to have a much quicker route. It's going to take me a lot of brain energy to turn instead of get, I'm going to get in the car. I'm going to start turning to the right and be like, wait, 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 wait. I have to remember, wait, there's another way. So changing that behavior, it's a procedural response, which means my body literally goes there. And so in good psychotherapy or even in good change of behavior or in, you know, working with that shift, and we'll talk about community and connection, we can change it, but expect that both those behavioral changes, one, we want to identify that part that's stuck in that place, that it feels like that's the only possible thing and to help it see there's another way. And then two, to work on behavioral change or changing the neural networks in the brain so that it can actually engage in that lady actually not going to that place. I consider myself very lucky that once a year I get to raise money for Lynx, which is an incredible organization supporting children and teens who have lost a parent. And this year during their campaign, I decided to adopt Dress Me for one month. Dress Me is a store where the girls of Lynx can come and shop. Everything is $5. It's all made up of donated items from brands. I have been donating to Dress Me for years now. And it was really special to have Brachi, who runs Dress Me, come on the show along with Sarif Gakon, who is the director of Lynx, and really just share how it is that the store runs. And that's exactly what Brahi is doing in this clip. So she pretty much books an appointment through a link, which gives you the available time slot. So she gets to choose a time slot that works for her, for starters. It's not like, oh, you must come this and this time. So she comes at her appointed time, and she's there alone with a personal shopper. I have about, I would say by now, about 50 to 60 shoppers that take appointments and it's in the mornings, it's afternoons, it's evenings, it's Friday, it's Sunday, it's Arab Yantif, it's whenever, you know, before every holiday, whenever, whenever, busy time, no matter what, they can book an appointment. She comes down to the store, she's there alone with a personal shopper that is just devoting her 40 minutes to her. And she'll help her, you know, find things that are good for her figure. She'll help her find things that are, that are, you know, that she likes. There also, I have all different walks of life. So I need all different types of clothing. We have from Lakewood, from Passaic, from Borough Park, from Williamsburg, from Belgium, from Antwerp, from Florida. I mean, you need all different types of clothing. So that's what I try to bring in as well. So really, we satisfy every single taste that there can possibly be. Mary Friedman shares her life online. She's best known as Mom Wife Actuary. I had her on for a conversation about work and life and loss. And in this clip, she shares on 
going back to work after experiencing a stillbirth and how the kindness of her managers played a huge role. You know, I got my full leave. I don't know if that's typical for everyone, but I, because, I, you know, there's no taking care of a baby. And so I wasn't sure if they would say to me, you know, you, got, you have to come back after you heal. Um, but they gave me the full 16 weeks. And yeah, she just really, even just coming back, you know, like if you don't want to be on meetings, if you don't want to, um, whatever, whatever I wanted to do, whatever my comfort level was, that's what she, uh, provided. And that's what got me through in the, during that time in this job. What was your comfort level? How, how did you what? transition back? Yeah. So she gave me like a, a big project kind of that was, and it was really nice of her. So it wasn't like a hands-on day-to-day, which is a little bit what I do now where I'm working with the sales team, working with this team, you know, like in communication, answering emails, it was more like, Hey, we need to figure this out. Um, it'll probably be like a couple weeks of like digging and going through a lot of Excel files and a lot of little numbers and a lot of processing information. Um, and so it doesn't require like a lot of meetings. It didn't require a lot of, you know, interaction with others. And so that for me, and I, and she wanted me to like take the lead a little bit to get back into things. And so I started with that project and then slowly, you know, re, slowly, slowly would, re, I wouldn't even say reach out, but like start doing tasks that require interaction and that is where you know that's where I struggled the most because some days I was okay to interact and some days I wasn't and so to just not have the pressure to ever need to interact was what I needed at that time but I slowly got back into it um you know being able to just kind of be on I guess the word is when you're at work my last episode of this year before the anniversary was an emergency podcast recording with Esther Goldstein, who you heard from just a couple of clips ago. And she is a trauma therapist, like I said before, and she's really good at knowing how to navigate traumatic situations like what we are dealing with, with the current war happening in Israel. And one of the things that she shared that I personally have found to be very helpful were some grounding exercises. And I am going to play you a clip of one. Right. What we do is grounding exercises. So what I usually do, if someone is very overwhelmed, is what I might say is like, take off your feet. I want you to be barefoot for a minute. And I want you to literally feel, yeah, the heels of your feet on the ground. And I want you to really just notice like every inch of your skin, noticing the bottom, how cold or hot it feels to be on the ground. Just notice that space between right? That's the heels. You want to notice your extremities. You might take your hands and you might say to your hands, just like your feet, the heels are touching the bottom of the ground. You might take your hands. Yeah. Do it together with me. Like rub your palms against each other and see if you can feel the heat, right? And you can play around with it. Like rub your palms either really slowly or really quickly, right? You're going to notice that there's like a level of heat that comes up. If there's thoughts or feelings, just notice them, but come back to just like this rubbing of well. So there's this heat, right? There's this heat feeling that cuts coming between my two hands. And then you stop and just feel what the sensations are like. 
Another thing that people can do is like stand up and push their, their back against the wall. So it's almost like what you, because what you want to do is orient to the fact that you have a body and that you're in skin and your mind is just your mind and your body is your body. So, you know, you want to be able to orient to the basics of like the externals of who you are. Thank you to everyone who came on the show and listened over this past year. Without you, I'd just be a girl talking to her computer. To hear more episodes, you can subscribe and head over to impactfashionnyc.com to see my designs. The Impactful Podcast is presented by Impact Fashion, your destination for all things size-inclusive, modest fashion. The Be Impactful Podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 28 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 19 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant parties. This episode, the episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. Here's to making an impact together.